0: If you were with us last Sunday, you know we began a new sermon series where we're focused on how to live a life that makes a difference. Specifically, we're looking at key uh, people in the Bible who lived a life that made a difference for the kingdom of God. You may remember last Sunday, we actually began with uh, the story of Abraham, who's the father of our faith. In fact, he's the first name mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus as we find it recorded in, in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 2. And of course, Abraham is known as the father of our faith because as he heard God's call, he left his homeland to go to a land that God would show him. And God gave him the, the, one, the son of the promise, Isaac. And through Isaac, of course, as you read the genealogy of Jesus, you'll see that Isaac eventually gave birth to, uh, to Jacob. And Jacob's name is changed in Genesis chapter 32 to Israel because Jacob was one who wrestled with God. And that's what Israel means. It means one who wrestles with God. And so Jacob becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as you continue to read the story in Genesis, you'll see that of these 12 sons, he had one son that he really kind of liked the best. His name was Joseph, right? And Joseph was the one he liked the best. And maybe you haven't read that text. Maybe you saw the musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technical, Dreamcoat. Dream Coat. Great musical, good story. Anyway, got, uh, uh, Jacob gives his son Joseph this great coat and all his brothers get jealous. Parents don't show favorites, right? And so he sh- they get jealous of Joseph, and they decide to beat up Joseph and sell him into slavery. And eventually, Joseph ends up in Egypt as a slave. Well, through God's providential hand, God uses Joseph to help save many lives. Because what happens is Pharaoh begins to have these troubling dreams, and he's wondering if anyone can interpret these dreams for him, because he's certainly these must be from God. Well, God gives Joseph the ability uh, ability to interpret these dreams, and he tells him that the dreams he's having are the same same interpretation, that you're going to have seven years of bountiful harvest, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you should make preparations for those seven years of famine so that people will not starve and die. Well, Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph's interpretation that he makes Joseph this slave Hebrew young man from uh, Israel. He says, hey, I'm going to make you the head of my household and over all the storage facilities so you can gather and collect all the grain that we're going to need for those seven years of famine. Well, the famine hits not only Egypt, it hits uh, Canaan, the land where uh, the, the family of Israel was living. And so they actually have to come down to Egypt to get food. And through God's providential hand, Joseph reunites with his brothers. He actually forgives his brothers and he tells his brothers this great line that we find in Genesis chapter 50. He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, the saving of many lives. And so God redeems that whole relationship and actually the entire family of Israel, about 70 people, moved to Egypt and they, they lived there. And they flourish. In fact, the family of Israel lived in Egypt for over 400 years. But eventually, there's a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph and doesn't know their story. And he becomes anxious at how quickly the Israelites are growing. And so he decides to pass this edict that any baby boy born of the Hebrews would be killed immediately so that he wouldn't grow up to be a man. And fortunately, by God's grace, this little baby, Moses, is born, and the mother protects him. But eventually, she puts Moses in a Moses basket and puts him in the Nile River. And then Pharaoh's daughter sees baby Moses, and she's so impressed with him that she takes Moses and raises little Moses as her own. But Moses knows he's a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. And as he grows up to be a man, he notices, and he's upset by the way the Egyptians are abusing the Hebrews, And in one particular incident, he actually sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And Moses looks around, and nobody seems to be watching. And he strikes the Egyptian, and he kills the Egyptian. Well, word gets out, and Moses is now a wanted man. So he has to leave Egypt in Pharaoh's palace, and he flees to Midian, a land that is not his own. And eventually he meets a a woman, and they have have two sons, and he is now herding his father-in-law's sheep. Well, by all accounts, Moses is one of the most important characters, one of the most important people in all of the Bible. God used Moses in some remarkable ways to help save God's people. And if we want to be people, the kind of people who help make a difference for the kingdom of God, we want to look at the story of Moses and see what was it about Moses that made him such a faithful servant to God. To see what it was, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles, your iPhones, your Androids, or whatever you use to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, but before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you so much that as we turn to this familiar story, we know that by your spirit that you will speak to us as we humbly turn to you. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit you might speak a fresh word to us that we might hear from you, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Listen to God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the age of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. But God said, I will, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you. I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. "'unless compelled by a mighty hand. "'So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt "'with all the wonders that I will do in it. "'After that, he will let you go. "'And I will give this people favor "'in the sight of the Egyptians. "'And when you go, you shall not go empty. "'But each woman shall ask of her neighbor "'and any woman who lives in her house "'for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. "'You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. "'So you shall plunder the Egyptians.'" Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I will look again at uh, those first few verses in Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked... And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, what's interesting to me in this story is that God waits until Moses notices the burning bush. Now, we know from other stories in Scripture that God doesn't have to wait on us to talk to us, right? You may remember the story of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. Saul is on the road to Damascus not to become a follower of Jesus, but rather to persecute the followers of Jesus. He's not looking for God. He's on this road to Damascus thinking he's doing God's will. But then Jesus from heaven blinds Saul of Tarsus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, shocked, stunned, and now blind, says, Whom are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then through a miracle of God's spirit, Saul's heart is transformed, and he has eyes to see that Jesus really is, in fact, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And Saul goes by his Roman name, Paul, and he begins to plant churches throughout the Mediterranean, and he helped write much of the New Testament. But Saul wasn't looking for God when God appeared to him. But in our text this morning, God appears— And he waits until Moses notices and is attentive to what God is doing before God chooses to speak to Moses. Why is that, do you think? I think it's probably because God would rather speak to people who are paying attention, right? We may be so busy in our lives that we're not paying attention to God, and and God is doing things, and, and we're not paying attention, and we might miss it. Because I think one of the reasons that God called Moses is because Moses was attentive attentive to what God was doing around him. How good are we at listening to God's voice, hearing God's voice these days? Because I know in our prayer life, you know, we talk to God a lot and we share all of our concerns, but do we take time, as much time at least, listening to God in prayer as we do talking with God? Speaking of prayer, this Wednesday night, we're going to begin a new uh, study of this book by Timothy Keller, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. It's a great book on prayer. Uh, If you want to be a part of it, we'd love for you to be with us in the uh, parlor at 630 on Wednesday night as we go through this great book. Timothy Keller, kind of like Eugene Peterson, who was another great Presbyterian scholar and pastor, points out that prayer is really answering speech. We pray in response to God's activity. We know this from scripture because in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks the first words, let there be light. God speaks and God creates. And we are now living our lives in response to God's creative word and his activity. And so prayer is really answering speech. And and critical in a a vibrant prayer life where we experience awe and intimacy with God is not only to talk to God, but to listen to God. But in order to hear God, we've got to be silent. How much time do we spend in silence these days? You know, with our iPhones and TikTok and social media and Facebook and, and television and radio, it's hard to find silence these days, isn't it? It's hard to be quiet, to be still, and to know that he is God. You know, several years ago, I had an opportunity to take a class from uh, Dallas Willard uh, who's a professor in the doctoral program at Fuller Seminary. And we, we actually had this class in a monastery. We lived in a monastery for two weeks in California where they had no cell coverage, no Wi-Fi. In fact, Sarah got nervous because I wasn't calling, checking in. She's like, are you okay? I was like, yeah. I had to find this one hill where I could stand a certain way and I get a little bit of coverage. Oh, okay, I'm fine, yeah. But anyway, we began, part of, the, part of the time together in the monastery was with the 24 hours of silence, not to speak a word. And I'm an extrovert. That was a little hard. I'm used to talking to people. I wanted to get to know my classmates. It's a little weird to have a meal with people and not talk to them. And we're just looking and smiling, you know, kind of humming. You know? But we couldn't talk. It was a little weird. And initially, I was frustrated by this experience. And yet, as we spent more time in silence, all the voices that were running in my head about all that was going on back in Amarillo and things I had to do and what, take care of and whatnot, they began to quiet down. And I, began to, I could begin to hear God's voice even better. How can we make sure we take the time we need to to be still, to listen to God? Willard writes this about the discipline of silence and solitude. He points out that they normally go together and he says this, as with all disciplines, we should approach the practice of silence in a prayerful, experimental attitude, confident that we shall be led into its right use for us. It is a powerful and essential discipline. Only silence will allow us life-transforming concentration upon God. It allows us to hear the gentle God whose only son, and now he quotes Matthew 12, 19, shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice above the street noise. If we want to hear God speaking to us, we need to be still, usually in solitude, time alone, And silently listen to God as he speaks to us through his written word, but also as God speaks to us through his circumstances. And one prayer that I find in the written word of God that is a good prayer to pray if we really want to hear God's voice is the prayer of Samuel. I was reminded of this uh, several years ago. I was driving my car and I was actually listening uh, to a sermon by John Ortberg, and he was going on 1 Samuel 3 talking about the call of Samuel, and you may remember the story. Uh, Hannah, who was believed to be barren, prays to God, and she gives birth to Samuel, and she dedicates her little boy Samuel to the Lord, and so Samuel grows up in the the tabernacle with the priest Eli, and the priest Eli is helping tutor tutor or lead Samuel, and one night Samuel hears God's voice, and he hears Samuel, Samuel, and so Samuel runs to Eli and says, you called me, you know, Lord, and he said, no, I didn't call you, go back to bed. This happens three times. Finally, by the third time, uh, Eli's like, oh, it's, it's the Lord. The next time you hear that voice say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so John Ortberg in this little sermon as I'm listening to it, he says, hey, that's a great prayer to pray. Just pray, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And then just listen. Well, I'm driving my car to work. And so I thought, well, I'll try it. So with my eyes open, okay, eyes open, um, I prayed this prayer and I said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I turned off the radio. I just drove in silence. One of the great places we can have silence is, is in our car. Another great place we can have silence is when we're maybe at the breakfast table. I like to wake up earlier before anyone else does in my home, and I like to sit out at the breakfast table and just quietly read God's Word and listen to Him. Another great place to have silence is to go on a hike. I love to go to the Palo Alto Canyon. Today it's kind of cold. But just to hike without earbuds, just listen to the noise and the sound of nature. Just listen to God. Well, as I'm driving my car praying, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Initially, I heard nothing. But I keep driving, and I keep quietly praying with my eyes open. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Well, I take a left on Washington as my custom to do, and and I'm headed to 11th Street. But then I hear this still small voice kind of nudging me saying, take a right on 15th. That's weird. I never take a right on 15th. I take a right on 11th. It's quicker. But what? it won't hurt. So I take a right on 15th. As I turn on 15th, I see this woman trying to push her Jeep Cherokee all by herself, not making much progress. Well immediately I put my car in park. I hit, hit the hazards. I jump out of my car and say, Hey, can I help you push your car? And she goes, Yeah, this is my daughter's car. Oh, this is crazy. You know, I was trying to get her some gas. It's run out of gas. I'm just trying to get to the toot and totem right there at Washington and 15th. If you could push me and I'll steer, that'd be great. I said, Yeah, no problem. So she gets in her car. I push her car as quickly as I can, try not to block traffic, you know, get her to the gas station. I said, Hey, do you need help with gas? She's like, No, I've got it. Thank you so much. I said, no problem. My car's blocking traffic. So I run to my car as fast as I can. I sit down and as soon as I get my car and close the door. I hear that voice again. You didn't tell her why you did it. Right, Lord. So I run back. I get in my car. I drive. I get to the gas station, and I pull up to her, and I said, hey, I don't mean to bother you again. Sorry. I just want to I have to feel like God was telling me to take a run on 15th. I don't normally take the 15th. I actually, I'm the senior pastor at the First Presbyterian Church on 10th and Harrison. I normally take 11th Street, but God told me to take a, 15, uh, take a run on 15th to help you push your car. And Well, here's my card. If you don't have a church home, I'd love for you to come join us for church sometime, worship. And I'd love to have you sometime. Well, she couldn't believe this. She said, this is crazy. While I was pushing my car, not making much progress, I said, Lord, please help me. And he sent me a Presbyterian minister. <laughs> she began to worship with us. Are we listening to God's voice? Are we attentive to how God is moving around us? Because God wants to use each one of us to help make a difference in the work of his kingdom. God wants to use each one of us to help love our neighbor. And one of the best ways we can love our neighbor well these days is by listening to them, asking them questions, getting to know them, being attentive to how some may be struggling or others are hurting or what we can do to walk alongside those, to pray for them, to encourage them, to point them to the one who came to save us all. Yes, I believe God chose Moses because Moses was was attentive and Moses was humble. Look again at Moses' response to encountering the living God. In our text we read, God says, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses was a, afraid to look at God. He was so humbled to be in God's presence that he looked down. He knew he didn't deserve to be in God's presence. He knew he, could, he wasn't holy enough to look at God, so he put his face down. He looked down on the ground. And notice Moses' response when God asks him. He says, who am I that I should lead the people of Israel? Yes, God wants to use us, but we've got to humble ourselves so that we might be an effective instrument for God's kingdom. I love what we read in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, about Moses. It says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. The man Moses was very meek, more than all the people on the face of the earth. Now this is one way we know that Moses did not write all of the Pentateuch, because the most humble man wouldn't write, I'm the most humble man, right? So he didn't write that part. But all that to say, we know that Moses was a humble man, and as Moses heard God's voice, he, he did what he could to obey God's voice. This is very consistent with what Peter writes. Peter, the lead disciple of Jesus, who writes in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 to 8. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know, a humble person knows that we need God's help. A humble person, as Jesus writes or says in John 15 verse5, as John writes in his gospel, about Jesus' words in John 15:5, Jesus says, "I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." A humble man, a humble woman knows that we need God's help to do the work of God's kingdom. So what's the key to humility? Timothy Keller has written a great little book on the virtue of humility. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, The Path to True Christian Joy. It's a pretty thin book. It's a great little read. I hate to ruin it for you, but The Path to True Christian Joy is humility right? Specifically gospel humility, as Keller explains it, gospel humility is that humility that comes with understanding the gospel in all its fullness. For the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that God loves us because he's chosen to love us. And there's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore, for God has already demonstrated his full extent of his love, that while we were sinners, Christ died on a cross to pay the price for all of our sins. As Jesus says in John 19 with his final words, it is finished. And then on the third day, he rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf so that we might have a a reconciled relationship with God, that we might have a, a conversation like Moses had conversations with God where we listen to God and we hear God and we talk to God and we share and we walk with God and seek to be an instrument of his grace. And Timothy Keller points out in his book that Christian humility, gospel humility, is not thinking less of ourselves, but rather thinking of ourselves less often. Thinking more of God than we think of ourselves. Because as we see from our text in Exodus chapter 3, God is already thinking of us. Look again to what God tells Moses in, in Exodus 3 verse 7. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God says, I have seen, I have heard, and I know. And Moses is a man who is attentive to what God is doing around him. He is humble enough to respond to God's call, and he's faithful for the most part to do all that God calls him to do because he knows that we serve a God who sees, who hears, and knows. And a God who loves us so much that he would send Moses to Pharaoh to set his people free. And on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, we, even, we know even better than Moses does how much our God sees and hears and knows. For just a few weeks ago, we celebrated that over 2,000 years ago, God saw the plight of humanity. He heard the cry of his people, and he knew that we could not save ourselves. And so he sent his son, his one and only son, born as a, as a baby from a virgin, who grew up among us. He began to teach us. He began to heal us. And ultimately, he died on that cross as the perfect sacrifice so that we might know That we have a God who is not far from us, but a God who is with us, Emmanuel, who hears us, who sees us, and knows us. Who's been tempted in every way that we've been tempted, and yet he was without sin. And so in gratitude for that great love, we want to be like Moses, who's attentive and paying attention to what God is doing around us. Not focused on ourselves, but rather focused on God. We want to be like Moses, who's not only attentive, but in humble service to God, is willing to do whatever God calls us to do, even when it doesn't make sense. What God called Moses to do didn't initially make sense to Moses, but Moses knew that our God is good. He's the God of love because he sees, he hears, and he knows. And because God knows us and he sees us and he hears us, he sent Moses to save Israel and he sent his son to save us. So in gratitude for God's love, may we seek to be attentive to how God is moving around us so that we might hear and see all that God is doing and we might participate in his saving work and humbly follow God's call each and every day. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, as we turn to this familiar text, we're thankful that Moses gives us an example of what it means to follow you by being attentive to what you're doing around us. Help us to be silent, to be still, to spend time alone with you in prayerful meditation on your word, hearing your word spoken to us through your scriptures, but also being attentive to how you're moving in and through the lives of those around us that we might encourage them and bless them and help them. Help us to take the time we need not only to listen to you, but to listen to our neighbor, to let them know we care by taking time to hear their story. And Lord, help us to be like Moses, who was a humble man, who humbly followed you and sought to be faithful to you. Lord, may it be true of us as well. And we do this not so we can earn glory, but rather in gratitude for how your son Jesus was humble, humble to the point of death on a cross so that our sins might be atoned for. And you showed us just how much you love us with an unconditional, sacrificial, eternal love. And so in gratitude for that love, Lord, help us to be a conduit of your love as we seek to be attentive, to what you're doing in and through the world around us that we might humbly follow you and we might faithfully point others to you we pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the christ and all god's people said amen